turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 10. God has spoken to us in His Word. It is true, it is authoritative, and it is, it is good. So once you have found your place in the Gospel of Luke, we'll begin reading in verse 25. Once you find a place, if you're able to, would you please stand in order to honor the reading of the words of our God. The word of God says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and be likewise. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your word. <coughs> Your word that speaks to us in whatever situation we might find ourselves in. A situation where we might be experiencing fear or grief. Or even great excitement over what you might have for our lives. So Lord, as we come to it, may we tremble before it. May we submit to it. May we seek to learn from it. May we be moved to serve our fellow brothers and sisters. May we be moved to serve those that you place in front of our lives with compassion. Because we know the great compassion that you have had upon us in your son, Jesus. So Lord, I ask that you be glorified through the preaching of your word. That every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Helping families move right. That was a slogan of a, of a company that is seeking to help families leave liberal states and move particularly to more conservative states. This past week I read an article about a massive move of like-minded people moving to Texas to set up their own communities, to set up their own neighborhoods, Surrounded by the same kinds of people that they all enjoy to be around. Surrounded by uh, their same neighbors. They want to get away from people that think differently than they do. 
And maybe to some that sounds incredibly nice. Sounds nice and bubbly, bubble-wrapped community, like-minded community. And as nice as that may sound for some people, friends, that's not a very biblical way to think about community. Nor is it a biblical way to think about our neighbors. They don't think like me, so I'm just going to leave and go around those who think just like well, friends, that's the fact that, in fact, that's, that's at the very heart of what this lawyer is seeking to do here. This expert of the law is at the heart of his question, and who is my neighbor? But, but Jesus, he, he combats that idea of seeking to only show compassion and care for those who are just like you. To only be around those who are just like you. He, he, he combats that way of thinking here. And to be honest, friends, it's much easier to love people who are just like you. But those are not your only neighbors. Those are not the only ones that we are called to minister to. Praise God that Christ's apostles didn't limit themselves to that in the early church. Praise God that Jesus didn't limit himself to that way of thinking as well, right? Friends, think about Paul's desire to go to Rome. Did he, go, did he have a desire to go to Rome because he wanted to be around people who were just like him? What was Rome like? Well, friends, it was the center of immorality and corruption in the Roman Empire. But he desired to preach Christ to make Jesus known all over that empire. And thank God that that's not the way of thinking that Christ calls us to. So friends, may that be our desire as well. Not just to easily serve and love those just like us, but to serve people in a way that is hard, that takes time, it takes effort, it takes money. The, the point of Christ's parable here, one of his most easily recognized uh, stories is not necessarily, well, who is my neighbor? But that we are to be a neighbor without restrictions. You see, this man here, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to check a box saying that he had fulfilled this. But friends, that's not the case. This lawyer, he was looking for minimal obedience. What's the least I can do to check this box off. But friends, what we see here is that, that Jesus requires total obedience. As we think about what we've been covering over the last couple weeks with, with being a follower of Christ, being a disciple of Jesus, we see that, that being a disciple of Jesus, it comes with great cost. That there's a great urgency of the task that we've been given. But here we see as well that, that the great compassion it takes to follow Jesus. So as we come to verse 26, we see this expert who, is, who knows but doesn't act. We see the danger of knowing but not acting. In verse 26, we're, we're introduced to this lawyer. Now, he's not the kind of lawyer that we would think about today. Uh, the word is also used there. It's used as a scribe. He's an expert of the law, an expert of the Old Testament, an expert of the Jewish law. Laws. He, he would be one of, of the wise and understanding 
that Jesus is referencing in verse 21 of chapter 10. Where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed it, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This man was an expert, right? He's described here as an expert. He's a lawyer, an expert in the law. And so he, he comes to Jesus. He stands up seeking to do what? Verse 26, to put him to the test. Oh, Jesus, you uneducated rabbi, you uneducated teacher, well, let me test you. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which, when asked rightly on the one hand, is a good question. It's one of the most important questions we can ask. But this man was not seeking to simply learn from Jesus, right? He's seeking to test him, to debate him. This, this lawyer thought he already knew the answer. He was an expert. He already had all of the answers. But you see, the problem, as, as we're going to see at the end, as Jesus says, even though he knew the right answer, he was not living in light of it. Even though he thought he knew the right answer, he did not act completely upon the knowledge that he had. Friend, what a great temptation that is for every single one of us. To know right, to know the right answer, but do nothing. There are a lot of people who know the right answers. Many biblical questions, answers rightly to many biblical questions, to many theological questions. But the answers of these questions have never taken root in their lives. So friends, the question is, do you really have faith that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Do you really trust in Jesus for salvation? Or are you trying to earn that inheritance? Now on the other hand, this question is flawed, isn't it? You see the flaw in this man's question? He, he thought he knew the answer, but, but the question was flawed. He was asking, what must I do to inherit? Friends, what's an inheritance? It's a gift, right? A, a gift you don't deserve. Someone in your family passes away, you receive something from them. What did you do to deserve that inheritance? You were born. Nothing, right? It, it, it's a gift. And so Jesus responds to this man's question with a question, doesn't he? Which is a great way to respond to someone who's seeking to debate you. He says, what is written in the law? Verse 26, how do you read? So he sends the lawyer to the only authority for their lives, the, the word of God. Saying, you're an expert, how do you read? What's your interpretation? So the lawyer then responds in verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Basically a combination of Deuteronomy 6.5, which is known as the Shema, which calls Israel to love God with all their being. And then he combines it with Leviticus 19.18, which calls Israel to love their neighbor as themselves. Elsewhere, in Mark chapter 12, a scribe asks Jesus, you know, what's the most important commandment? So Jesus responds, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as 
when you boil down all of the laws in Scripture, you can boil them down to basically these two commands. To love God and to love one another. To love God and to love others. In fact, when you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, they can be broken down in that same way. The first four commandments, they have to deal with our relationship with God. Then the next six have to, to do with our relationship with others. They're connected. If you love God, then you will love your neighbor. You will love others. And so Jesus then responds in verse 28 saying, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Since maybe a, a tone of sarcasm in Jesus, right? If you do this completely, you're going to live. Which is likely what the lawyer was thinking. He's answered correctly. There really is nothing wrong with this man's answer. Jesus is telling him, actually, to practice the answer you just gave me. He's saying, knowledge is, not, knowledge is not enough. You must act on it. To truly love God means you do what He commands. Knowing what God requires is not enough. One must put that knowledge into practice. As one commentator put it, love that comes from the heart, responds with the hands. As the Reformers put it, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is not alone. True salvation comes from faith in Jesus Christ alone, but that faith doesn't remain alone. Our faith is our motivation for loving others. But then the lawyer in verse 29, he asks another question. This expert asked Jesus another question. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Luke gives us his motivation here. He, he's seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to make himself, his actions, look righteous, to look good. Uh, he was seeking to, to make uh, himself look good and right in the eyes of others. The Jewish tradition taught that, that Jews needed only to love one's neighbor in regards to other Jews, the recipients of the covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and they were meant to only love and care for those people who were just like them. In fact, some of the Pharisees even took it even farther and were saying, well, they only have to love each other, the other Pharisees. So this man is, uh, is seeking Jesus' approval of his actions, loving only those just like him. Friends, you see what the man is, is doing here? He's thinking, well, I, I love God, and, and I love others. He's checking boxes off for his salvation. He's checking boxes off for his justification, for his righteousness. He saw the law as not as something that exposed his need for grace and for salvation. He saw the law as his salvation. Yes, I, 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 I did this, so I'm going to check this one. I, I, I'm done with that. I'm good to go. Love my neighbors. Check that one. I'm good. What he is trying to do here is, is he thought he would be guaranteed salvation because of all of the laws he's following, but actually he did not have a relationship with God. All he had a relationship with was a bunch of check marks. When you look at, at, at the law in the Old Testament, there's about 613 laws. Friends, if you're checking those off the list, 
you're taking them off daily, you might feel pretty good about yourself. And, and that's what this man's doing. He's after that, that list, not God himself. When, when you look at what the law is truly after, it's truly after character and a love for God, you realize just how far you have fallen. And Jesus answered him saying, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. But the point is, Jesus is about to show this man is he can't do it completely, but I am. So the man asks, well, well, well who is my, my neighbor? Well, you must say that the Bible, the Old Testament says we must love our neighbors. Well, who is that? So I can go and check that one off my list. But Jesus shows him that's the wrong question to be asking. It's not about who is your neighbor, but are you being a neighbor? Am I meeting the needs of those that God has placed in front of me? And so Jesus goes on to tell one of his most famous parables. In verse 30, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus, he's describing this, this desperate state that this man is in. He, he's traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This route, it was not a pleasant route, it was about a 3,000-foot descent from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This route had a terrible reputation for being incredibly dangerous years before the time of Christ and even years after the time of Christ. So the listeners would have, would have known this. And, and you see that you could even look up what this route looks like today. It, it's not like the, the nice paved, paved paths that we have in Yosemite. It, it, it's rocky. It's... it's it's, 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 uh, it's through this rocky terrain with all of these caves surrounding it, that often where robbers would, would hide and ambush people. In fact, there, there was a section of this road called the Pass of Adumim, which, which is related to the Hebrew word for red and, and for blood. Sound like a fun road to be going down? And so this man, he's, he's raw. He, he's stripped, he's beaten, he's left half dead, as it says there. Now, what does it mean that he was half dead? It means exactly that. He's half dead. But then Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 31, Now, by chance, a priest. We're going to see that uh, these men who are not acting, and not acting is acting. Inaction is Martin Luther King put it this way, in the end we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So Jesus has just described this man's dire situation. He, he's, he, he, he's, he's stripped and, and left half dead, lying on the ground. He's in this unfortunate circumstance, but fortunately there comes someone around the corner to help. By chance, a priest. By chance, oh good, this man who's half dead now comes, now help is coming, and it's a priest of all people. How fortunate, help is right there around the corner. Jericho was home to many priests who lived outside of Jerusalem. So likely this priest is, is, is returning from serving in the temple. Here is a servant of God 
who ministers in the presence of God in the temple. Likely this man would have just finished serving his priestly duties there in the temple, and now here he is able to help this man. What does he do? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, now we don't have a specific reason why this priest passed. Could have been, maybe he feared uh, if this man was dead, it could have been that he feared that if he touched him, he would become unclean. Perhaps maybe he's afraid of, of a of a trap, maybe the robbers are still in the area and they've just set up a trap for him. We, we don't know what this man's motivation is, but we see that when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Instead of risking uncleanness or further uh, damage upon himself, he ignores the man and he continues on his journey. Likewise, a Levi, as Jesus says. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. The Levite was, was a member of the tribe of, of Levi, uh, of Levi but, but not a direct descendant of, of, of Aaron, which means that the Levites served in the temple, uh, but they did not do the specific priestly duties. And so just like the priest, this man was likely just coming from the temple and he was heading home. And he came to the place and saw him. The, the wording there suggests that this man came even a, a, a little bit closer. But then he does the same thing and he passes by on the other side. And so we see here's his second refusal to help this man. Two people pass by. Two people that would have been seen as, as, as exemplary in Jewish life. And Jesus is speaking here of the condemnation of, of false Religion, a religion that is false, not, not true religion that is undefiled, as James speaks of, caring for those in distress and affliction. These pious Jews had two opportunities to show mercy, to care for this man in his affliction, and what do they do? They pass by on the other side. They, they put their heads down, they, they cross to the other side of the road, they leave this man to die. Once again, Martin Luther King, it's not the, the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And what's amazing about this, based upon who these two men are, being uh, a priest and a Levite, what they would have likely done in the morning when they got up is said the Shema about how they were to love the Lord their God with their whole being. Likewise, before they went to bed that night, after they had uh, had their meal and they were preparing for bed, they likewise, likely would have said that again. That they are to love God with their whole being. But yet there's a disconnect with loving their neighbor. Then we see this compassionate acting in verse 33. So likewise, sorry, but, <laughs> but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, when, when, when hearing the name Samaritan, it's possible that the people in the crowd would have grumbled, 
possibly would have spit at the mention of this man's name. We saw a few weeks ago how Samaritans were looked down upon by Jews because they were descendants of the Hebrews in the northern kingdom who had intermarried with, with, with the pagans when Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel. Jews hated Samaritans. The feeling was mutual. Samaritans were despised by Jews. In fact, in John 8, when, when, when Jesus uh, was being opposed by the Jews, what do they say to Jesus? They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They equated demon possession with being a Samaritan. They saw them as the same. But Jesus goes on and, and he says, but, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And then Jesus goes on to describe the Samaritan's compassion. And he goes, when he, when he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He, he sees this man, he stops, he puts him on his animal, likely a, a donkey, binds up his wounds, pours oil and wine, ancient first aid. He compassionately cares for this man, sets him on his own animal and takes him to an inn and cares for him. And he doesn't just care for him in that actual moment. He, he, he shows his uh, future care as well. He, he lavishly provides for this man. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay, when I, I will repay you when I come. He gives the, the innkeeper two denarii, which, which are the equivalent to two days' wages that would have paid for about 24 days of this man staying at the inn. And, and he says emphatically there, I will repay you, not this man. The Samaritan provides for this man in the form of time and money. And then Jesus' final question then to this man which of these three do you think, in verse 36, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So, so Jesus corrects the lawyer's wrong question. Once again, the question is not, who should I see as my neighbor? Or, or who don't I need to serve as my neighbor? But, but how can I be a neighbor? Am I being a compassionate neighbor? How can, the love, uh, how can my love of God overflow out into those in need? Uh, how can I reflect the love of God to those in need that the Lord places in front of me? Friend, have you ever, have you ever been wronged? Why is it wrong to hold a grudge against someone who's done something against you? Is it sinful? Yes. But because when you hold a grudge against someone, you're saying that I'm not willing to do what God did for me. Therefore, that person doesn't understand grace. They don't understand forgiveness. You can't extend true forgiveness. You can't extend true grace unless you understand what God has done for you in the gospel. That's why racism and superiority makes no sense if you say that you believe the gospel. So friend, I, I ask you, have you experienced the radical grace of Jesus? Friend, what if you were saved by the grace of 
God, the one who, who owed you absolutely nothing. Who owed you absolutely nothing but rejection and punishment for your sin. Oh, only when you, you understand the grace of God that, that He did not have to save you. Only when you understand that through faith in Jesus you receive what you don't deserve. Only then will you begin to look at other people differently. And, and you see, that's the problem with this lawyer. He thought he was entitled to this inheritance. He thought that he could earn it. Uh, only when you recognize that, friends, will you be able to show compassion. Show this kind of compassion that we see here. You will never be able to extend true grace and true compassion until you've experienced the radical grace of God in Jesus Friends, the way you, you treat people of other races, the way you treat people of other social status, uh, uh, different levels of education, those who, are, who are, are different from you, the way you treat those people who are, who are costly to help, who, who take time, like in the case of the Good Samaritan here, the, the way you treat those people shows whether or not you are self-justifying just like this lawyer or whether you know truly what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. See, in, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking of how his followers, that they met the needs of those around them. And, and what he says there is, is he's saying it's not the way you treated the hungry and the poor and the least of these that actually saves you, that, that gets you into heaven. It's not the way you treated them that gets you into heaven. No, it's the way you treated them that shows whether you truly believe I am your Savior. Jesus says it's the way you treated them that, that shows, that proves whether you truly understand what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. So in a way, Jesus is asking this man, in light of this compassion here, this compassion shown by this despised Samaritan, who possibly, if this Jewish man was, 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 not, was more than half dead, he likely would have pushed this man away. Jesus is saying, is, in, in light of this compassion this man shows here, do you really want to try and justify yourself? Do you really want to try and stand before God and say, you are worthy based on what you have done? Uh, these commandments, these laws can't save. Friends, if the only way for us to get eternal life is to go and do likewise, then we're all in eternal trouble and deserve hell. And we do. The, the story given by Jesus here is, is to show this lawyer a deep deficiency in his own heart and his need for saving grace. As we saw last week, our, our rejoicing is not in self-justification. It's not in the works we've done. It, it, it's not as we see here in, in, in checking boxes. Because we see there is absolutely no way for us to justify ourselves in the presence of the Almighty God. No, our, our, our rejoicing is meant to be, as verse 20 says, is meant to be that our names are written in heaven. Jesus says, nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that is done as a free gift of God's grace. It is done 
in accordance with God's gracious will. This is based upon our justification in Jesus. It's an inheritance that is given by God alone. Grounded in our identity in Jesus. In His perfect righteousness and His perfect goodness. The fact that, that He who knew no sin died in our place. Friends, what we see here is we see this radical action. We see our compassionate Savior. It's a, it's a picture of what Jesus worked do for sinners. Who is the good Samaritan? The true good Samaritan? It, it's Jesus himself. How do we know this? Look at the word used to describe what the Samaritan felt for the man on the road. Look at the word. What is the word? It, it, it's compassion. The end of verse 33 in my translation. When he saw him, he had compassion. See, compassion. Should sound familiar, right? This is one of the most used words to describe Jesus' emotions in the Gospels. Compassion. In fact, Luke 7, verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Mark 8, 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Hey, Matthew 20, verse 34, and Jesus in pity, the word in compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The Old Testament, Isaiah, says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His people. The meaning of compassion is to be moved to the core. Literally, to, to feel your guts turn for the sake of someone else. That this priest, this Levite, they didn't become unclean but Jesus, the great high priest, became a curse for us. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The compassion of Jesus Christ led him to sacrifice himself for us. You see, the gospel says that Jesus came into the world. He came onto our Road. He owes us nothing but rejection. He would have been just to leave us on the road half dead, fully dead, leave us in sin, and He owes us absolutely nothing. Friend, Jesus owes you absolutely nothing. Here we see the Samaritan who risked his life to save this man, but Jesus didn't just risk his life to save us, He gave it and He laid it down. His compassion is on display when He went to the cross and laid down his life. If Jesus gave up his life for us, friends, what is our excuse for not meeting the needs of those that God places in our path? Well, what's our excuse to continue in sin? 
We are so good at coming up with excuses, aren't we? Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in New England area in the 18th century, he wrote a book, a work called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. In response to the excuses that, that, that people kept giving for not serving others. So, so he goes on to, to say, this is the, the to answer uh, these excuses, he seeks to answer them uh, with a biblical mindset. And so the, the first excuse that he one of the first excuses he sought to answer is, is but you say that, that, well, they're not truly poor. I only have to help those when they are truly destitute and poor. And so he replied, uh, he asked, well, we should relieve our neighbors only in extreme destitution, only in extreme circumstances? He goes on to say, that's not agreeable to the rule of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We get concerned about our situation long before we become destitute. Uh, we do something about our situation long before we become destitute, so you should love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, another excuse that, that he seeks to answer is, but, but they've brought this trouble upon themselves. I don't have to help them when they've brought the trouble on themselves. He responds, but Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourself by your own folly. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? So friends, what is our excuse? Is your excuse to only love those who are like you, who live in your own bubble? Only those who have your own right way of thinking? If so, then you have no concept of God's radical saving grace. You have no concept of Christ's compassion, and you're no different than this lawyer who is seeking to justify himself in the presence of the Almighty God. Brothers and sisters, praise God that Jesus did not think that way about us. They brought this trouble on themselves, therefore I don't have to do anything about it. And we see that even though we brought our sin upon ourselves, He left heaven to come and to save us from our sins. He owes us absolutely nothing. Isn't that not beautiful compassion? When He saw Him, He had compassion. And we seek to to glimpse the, the glory of Christ's compassion and seek to reflect it out those that God places in front of us. Let's pray. Holy Father, how can we not be moved when we see the compassion of your Son, Jesus? It, it would have been completely right and just to leave us in our but demonstrated, his, demonstrated your radical grace, your radical compassion by coming and living a life that none of us are able to live, a life without sin. Dying the death that we deserve to die for the punishment of our sin. Rising from the dead. Lord, we thank you again for your word. May it point us to Right, Savior, we truly have. 
this time we, we will continue in worship as we come to the Lord's Supper. This time for our service will come forward. You see the great love, the great compassion of Christ on display at this table sitting in front of us. Greater love has no man than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, 27, 26, uh, institutes the Lord's Supper as a reminder of His grace, as a reminder of His love, where we can visibly see and be reminded and also physically taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Lord is compassionate. Jesus, in, verse, in Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, the Word of God says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sin. That's what this is about to symbolize. It's what this is about to, to be a reminder of. Christ giving himself for us. Uh, our statement of faith in regards to the Lord's Supper says the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of, of the church, through partaking of the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second. So friends, what we're about to do here is, 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 is celebrate Christ's compassionate act, the greatest act of compassion this world has ever seen is that He laid down His life for us. But it's also a, a, a great reminder of how He's going to return one day and we get to be with Him. And so friends, I ask you, if you've been uh, baptized as a believer, that, that you would partake with us. If that doesn't describe you, may you uh, let the elements pass in front of you and think about the great compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this, if, uh, I know that I've taught on the reasons for that here before, preached on it before, but in two weeks in Sunday school, we're going to be going through the Lord's Supper. So if you want to know a little bit more about what we think, I invite you to Sunday school in two weeks, uh, Sunday morning at 9.30. So we're going to dive into that even deeper about why we believe what we believe about the Lord's Supper. So as you sit there and you think and reflect upon the fact that Christ's body was broken from, Friend, is there anything that you're holding against your brother or sister in Christ? Lay down at the feet of Jesus and hold that grudge against them no longer because Christ did not do that.
you're able to, would you please stand? So I'm going to read for us, and I'm going to ask that David ask for God's blessing on the bread, and then we'll take the Lord. The Word of God says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And he had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in the night. David, you ask Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless this time together, this time that we come together to, uh, to remember what you've done for us on the cross. A body of believers coming together for a broken body that was saved for our sins. We thank you for Christ. Let's stay together. As we pass out the covenant, you think about how it's a sign of the covenant that Christ has cleansed us from all sin. John asked for God's blessing. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. John, would you ask for God's blessing? We do thank you, Father, for the many, many ways that you bring to us knowledge of you and Christ through the scripture, through pastors and teachers, and 
picture we were attending was very important one that was very demonstrative of our position with you. So as we take this, we want to remember the promise you've given to return again for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Let's proclaim the Lord's death together. And would you please stay standing as the word